This morning, uh, this morning's sermon is designed specifically, or I should say designed for a specific purpose. As you know, I suppose, I, I guess it's right to say that I have a little bit of an agenda this morning. Uh, as you know, uh, after our service, uh, if you are a member of Rosedale Bible Church, if you're here this morning and you are a member, you'll have the opportunity to vote for a new senior pastor. And that man, the man who is being recommended as senior pastor by the elders is me. Uh, so with the knowledge, with that knowledge, this Sunday, that, it, this, that this Sunday would involve such a vote, um, I began to think about what would I say? What kind of message would I, would I offer? Do I return to our current study in the Gospel of John? be good, well enough, and it's God's word. Um, maybe I should outline some reasons why you should vote for me. <laughs> or uh, maybe preach on something related to pastoral ministry. Well, thankfully, I haven't chosen to argue myself, uh, but I have chosen to do the latter, which is to preach on something related to pastoral ministry. And so this morning, my hope is that this sermon might become a kind of template, uh, maybe a model uh, for ministry here at Rosedale Bible Church, Church, that the truths that are extracted from this text might become kind of ministry commitments for me and for us uh, together, that these commitments might become a way maybe of measuring our ministry or measuring my ministry here at RBC and uh, whoever might come and lead this church. Now, while there are a number of passages that we might go to, to to do this, there are a number of places we could go in the New Testament, maybe even in the Old Testament as well, uh, one seemed to rise to the surface, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And so that's the passage that we're going to be in this morning and we're going to look at. And so as is our habit here at Rosedale Bible Church, I'd like to read this passage. And so if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we'll begin with a scripture reading. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Lord, this is powerful. There is, there is nothing else that could be more powerful than what has just been spoken in this room. God, we pray that the truths that are found in this passage of Scripture might penetrate 
yes, our hearts, but also penetrate this ministry here at Rosedale Bible Church. That past heritage would be passed on and there would be much future heritage here at Rosedale Bible Church. Not to any method, not to any program, but to the word of God, your very word. May you bless this morning and may you bless this ministry, Lord. Use this passage to change us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This is our thesis this morning. This morning, through Paul's ministry in this passage, we're going to see five dynamics of an authentic Christian ministry. Five dynamics of an authentic Christian ministry. Our passage begins this morning with the word, therefore. It simply means that our passage is connected to what is preceded. So, in order for us to understand 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, of which we're not doing a current study through, we have to understand something about the path Paul's been on. There's a lot to say here, but we're only going to say just about as much as we have to say to, to make sense of the passage. In the verses that come before our passage, particularly chapter 2, verses 14 through chapter 3, Paul has been arguing for le- the legitimacy of his ministry, This defense is offered in contrast to those false apostles or those people who, he says, peddle God's word. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not, this is Paul and his associates, the other apostles, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Important to Paul's argument is the glorious nature of the new covenant, and that's really what he does in chapter 3 as he talks about the glorious nature of the new covenant. He traces some of the realities of that new covenant, and he argues that ultimately what validates or authenticates his ministry is the very spirit of the living God. It's God's spirit that validates his ministry. And so, in effect, what Paul is saying is that his ministry is valid because it contains the open and clear proclamation of the truth and trusting that God's spirit will be at work. Paul is not therefore peddling or hawking the word of God, which means any positive ministry result is entirely of the Lord. This is what Paul says in chapter 3 verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. This is what is the foundation, you might say, of Paul's ministry here in, to the Corinthians. Of course, if anyone understood this, that this ministry was from the Lord, it was Paul. Because we know that Paul was previously an unbeliever and a, a persecutor of the church. Paul even describes himself in 1 Timothy as the chief of sinners. This reminds us of God's mercy toward Paul. Paul was called to Jesus and to the new covenant ministry while on a murderous rampage against the church. And so, Paul can say in chapter 4, verse 1, that ministry is by the mercy of God. And so here we have what I'm arguing is the first dynamic of an authentic Christian ministry. Authentic Christian ministry rests on the mercy of God. 
It rests on the mercy of God. It was, it was God's mercy that took a blasphemer and a persecutor and turned him into an apostle and a servant of the church. These words demonstrate that Paul rightly understood that ministry is a gift of God. Paul makes the same point in his first letter to the Corinthians, and he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Anything that Paul had, he was given from the Lord. It was God who saved him. It was God who was currently in this context delivering him from various afflictions, various persecutions, and it was God who was giving him the strength to carry on his ministry. God was in everything that he was doing. What comes as a result of seeing ministry as a mercy of God? What are the implications? Well, what does Paul say at the end of this verse? He says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. The mercy of God forms a powerful basis for perseverance. Perseverance. He says, we are not giving up. We do not despair, is what he's saying. We will not be cowardly or timid. We will not grow faint-hearted. We will not draw in our horns, you might say. A ministry that rests on the mercy of God will not let, let up. It will not lose heart. It will not shrink back. To borrow from 2 Thessalonians 3.13, we will not grow tired of doing good. Did Paul's ministry demonstrate these features? Well, in a couple thoughts, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul speaks of various afflictions that he's been through. He says, speaking of the God of all comfort, he says, who comforts us in our, all our affliction. This is kind of the context in which Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He speaks of these uh, great afflictions that came while he was in Asia in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, and we despaired of life itself. In chapter 2 of the letter, he, he speaks of relational difficulties that he experienced. He, he expresses emotional turmoil in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. In the section that follows ours, our passage of study this morning, Paul speaks powerfully of, the, powerfully of the troubles and assaults that were against him on every side in chapter 4, verse 8. We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Did Paul shrink back in the midst of all of this turmoil and trouble and persecution? No, he didn't. He pressed on. Chapter 1, verse 12, he boasts, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. So it's a sense of boldness, confidence in those words. He speaks directly to it in chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are, we are very bold, he says. The product of seeing ministry as a mercy of God is perseverance. And you see that in the life of Paul. I think it's quite natural to attribute Christian boldness or perseverance to personality or maybe a certain sense of gifts, spiritual gifts. 
But here it is connected to rightly seeing God's work in our lives. Faint-heartedness is not always a result of failing to see God's grace in our lives. Sometimes we are faint-hearted and we struggle with that. But oftentimes it is. Said that the other way, often when we're faint-hearted, it's because we don't recognize that ministry is a gift from God and that God is merciful towards us. The closer we come to seeing ourselves as products of God's mercy, the tougher we become. As we understand, as our, our understanding of God's mercy grows in our heart, the shell of self begins to crack. And as a re- result, what emerges is a Christian filled with confidence and boldness in his God. What emerges is a Christian is a minister, is a pastor that declares, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, I will not lose heart. We have a sharp contrast in verse 2. And in verse 2, we have a second dynamic of authentic Christian ministry. Authentic Christian ministry must be practiced with integrity. Christian, authentic Christian ministry must be pra- practiced with integrity. Verse 2, Paul writes, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is not a huckster. He is not going to get ahead through sneaky or deceitful actions. He is not going to participate in shifty ministry. What does it mean to practice ministry with integrity? Well, Paul says he he refuses to practice cunning. Paul's not going to live by tricks. To live by tricks is to, to skew the truth. It's a pattern found in the false apostles that Paul is going up against in Corinth. But this pattern isn't going to be found in Paul. Paul's ministry will not reek of false motives. It's not going to to manipulate others to garner, garner a following. In order to practice ministry with integrity, one must not practice cunning nor tamper or distort the Word of God. Paul is describing a method that would make God's Word false through deception or distortion. It would adulterate the word. Here we have a fitting description of an inauthentic ministry. Such a ministry will distort or twist the word. It will mislead people with a, with a guise of leading them to the authoritative revelation of God. An inauthentic, inauthentic ministry uses the, the power tools of manipulation to build, to shape, and to mold the word of God to, into, into wrong teachings, excuse me. Guthrie says, false teachers use the word as an instrument to their own ends, as a means to bolster their influence rather than to better the church. If, a, if an integrous or an honest ministry refuses to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, what does it do? What does it accept? What does it promote? Well, this is what Paul says. He says, by the open statement of truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what it does. I'll summarize that this way. It's a little bit of a tricky thing to understand or a tricky sentence. I'd summarize it this way. A ministry of integrity contains the clear proclamation of truth, addressing the conscience of the hearers with the understanding that we will answer to God. So those three elements. Let me say that again. An integrous ministry contains the clear proclamation of truth, addressing the conscience of the hearers with the understanding that we will answer to God. That's what authentic ministry looks like. Guthrie, again, unlike the tangled webs woven by false ministers, authentic Christian ministry weaves a, a tapestry of motives, actions, and fruit that presents a consistent picture of integrity before self, before others, I would add, before the church, and before God. They warn you in seminary, at least they warn your wife especially, that you live in a glass house. You've probably heard that before. This warning is often uh, given to pastors, uh, and it's a reminder to, to keep things in order in the home, right? That's really what that's about. You live in a glass house, make sure your, your home's in order. And, and to some degree, that's good, because the qualification for being a pastor or an elder is that a man must be able to manage his home wisely, or, or he must be able to, to manage it well, Someone does not know how to manage or lead his own household. How will he care for God's church? Yet the reality of living in a glass house is spoken of not as a blessing, but as a lament, you might say. There's another perspective. There's this African proverb I found. It goes something like this. I want to live in a house with no walls. Well, here the person sees the benefits of openness. As it relates to ministry, I think this is more to Paul's point and his description of authentic Christian ministry. Chapter 6, verse 11, Paul, the spirit of what Paul is after is, is contained maybe better in this verse, six, chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your heart, hearts also. Paul is saying something like, we've done ministry with our hearts open to you. And so if there's, any, if there's anything that we're not getting to, if we're not coming together well, it's not our fault. We widened our hearts to you. We did everything we could to be open before you. So don't restrict yourself. Come to us. Let's be united. Let's be one. This is an authentic Christian ministry is, is open. That's what he's saying. There, there are no walls. There's no hidden deception. There's no shifty action. There's no walls that stand before the pastor and the people within the reach of his ministry. And most importantly, there are no walls between that pastor, that man, and his God. At least there ought not to be. And I might say, might add, on the authority of God's word, the pastor or the elder who lives with such integrity should be commended and accepted by the people. Spurgeon comments on this 
kind of glass house idea a little bit. He writes, We are watched by a thousand eagle eyes. Let us so act that we shall never need to care if all heaven and earth and hell swelled the list of spectators. Our public position is a great gain if we are enabled to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Take heed, brethren, that you not throw away the advantage. Spurgeon has that perspective that it's good that we live in a glass house. It's an opportunity for people to see what integrity looks like. This ministry that promotes the open statement of truth and, is, and appeals or is open to the conscience before God allows for a, a clear pathway to the minister. It's an open proclamation of truth, an appeal to the conscience. It, it allows for the, the pastor, it allows for the elder uh, to, to use his life as kind of a, a, a backbone of, of ministry to do, and a way to do ministry. It provides uh, the principle of imitation, the principle of imitation that leads to ultimately to discipleship. You remember Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is also the foundation for what's written in the last chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13 says, 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He goes on in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Of course, not everyone is going to embrace such a ministry. Look at verses three and four of chapter four. And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul moves on, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is our third dynamic of an authentic Christian ministry. Authentic Christian ministry will be rejected by those with blind minds. Although Paul's ministry was public, although it was the unveiling of truth, although he was open, his actions open to the conscience, people still rejected his ministry. Why? Did Paul lack rhetorical skills? Was he a boring preacher? We do have an account in Acts 20 of a man falling asleep and falling out of a window. Maybe you remember that. But the fact that people rejected his gospel doesn't discredit his ministry in any way. Hodge writes, The reason or cause of this fact that men rejected his ministry is not to be sought either in the nature of the gospel or in the, the mode of its exhibition, but in the state and character of those who rejected it. The problem wasn't with Paul's gospel or the way he delivered it. The problem was that Satan had blinded the minds of the unbeliever. Hodge goes on, The sun does not cease to be the sun, although the blind do not see it. Verse, verse 4 helps us understand why the gospel is veiled. 
It's because their minds, minds of the unbeliever, have been blinded by the God of this world. This description, God of this world, or some translations say the God of this age, is a way of speaking of our enemy. You know this. It's a way of speaking of Satan. Although it seems strange to refer to Satan as a god, Paul is simply acknowledging that Satan does have a kind of lordship in this world. Recall the parable of the sower. Jesus delivers that parable, and he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. The subject of Satan are unbelievers, and his dominion is characterized by lawlessness, by darkness, by unbelief, the worship of idols, and immoral acts. The principal features of Satan's subjects is that their minds are blind. Their minds are blind to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They cannot see the light that is emanating from the good news of Jesus Christ, the light of God's glory. Can't see it because their minds are blind. Spurgeon commented on the discouragement that surrounds this rejection. Spurgeon says, Passionate longings after men's conversion, if not fully satisfied, consume the soul with anxiety and disappointment. To see the, the hopeful turn aside, waxing more bold in sin, are not these sights enough to crush us to the earth? I know many of you feel that way, especially when you watch your family members and the people that you love most abandon themselves or, or abandon the gospel. The kingdom comes not as we would, Spurgeon continues. The reverend name is not hollowed as we desire, and for this we must weep. How can we be otherwise than sorrowful while men believe nor our report and the divine arm is not revealed? And yet, our passionate longings Spurgeon says, must be mixed with realism. An authentic ministry recognizes that preaching the gospel by its very nature involves spiritual forces beyond, behind us, beyond us. As we will soon see, it is only God that can shine light into the human heart, giving sight to those blinded by the God of this world. I suppose this reality keeps a, a minister's emotions in check it helps him to always remember that his, his work, his business, is otherworldly. That although he labors with the gospel, there are spiritual forces at work outside of him that are blinding the minds of the unbeliever. I was thinking as I was studying this of Paul's words in Ephesians 6, always remembering while, I suppose, sitting at the desk, that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Fourth dynamic of authentic Christian ministry is found in verse 5. This verse gives us almost a complete summary of Christian ministry. Barrett writes, it would be hard to describe the Christian ministry more comprehensively in so few words. Paul writes this, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I'm going to call this fourth point. We minister as servants. We minister as servants. You can see I've ditched the alliteration this morning. I should have worked harder, but oh well. In Paul's day, it was entirely appropriate to seek honor and prestige through one's communication abilities. Public teaching was an opportunity to parade one's authority or superiority, to gain a place of influence. But what we see in Paul's life is something quite different. Paul did not do that at all. In fact, when you read about Paul's ministry and the way he describes it, it was completely opposite of that. It's almost like he's bragging that they didn't didn't go very far. They didn't do very well. Chapter 4, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. The sophists, the the religious leaders, the the wise people of Paul's day wouldn't have looked at his ministry and thought, well, that's, that's going well. No, he's being persecuted. Chapter 6, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. All of this was a part of Paul's ministry. Again, not a demonstration of things going well, that he should be accepted. In chapter 11, we're most probably familiar with this text, is where Paul kind of outlines all of his experience that he he went through. Chapter 11, Starting at verse, what is it, 23. Are they servants of Christ, these false apostles? I'm a better one. Am I talking like a madman? Paul's going to speak about what he's been through. For far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. And he goes on, talking about the way he was accepted and the ministry he had. This, would, would not been, this wouldn't have been a way to, to seek honor or prestige in Paul's day. As Paul describes his ministry, it would have been regarded as unsuccessful according to the value system, you might say, of his peers. But to embrace humiliation is to embrace Christ. Paul has a different ministry aim. So Paul can say, that he is always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal bodies. What a radical statement to minister in that way. That the model is death, the death of Christ. To acknowledge our weakness is to put greater attention on Christ, who is the true focus of genuine Christian ministry. Paul says we are not proclaiming or preaching ourselves. To preach oneself is to celebrate self. It's to put on airs. It's to see the the pulpit as a soapbox to spout one's own pet theme. Cranfield adds, how often is it that which is hailed as a successful ministry is little more than success in winning a personal following? That's not what ministry is about. If not ourselves, if we're not preaching ourselves, then what? When Paul says, 
we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what we proclaim. This is the the testimony that Christ has been resurrected and exalted as Lord. It's the, the proclamation that Jesus is God's suffering servant. That as we've spoken of the last two weeks, he is the agent of the atonement. It's to preach the conviction that salvation is in no other name than the name of Jesus. That our prayers are offered in the name of Jesus. That God only hears us through Jesus. That Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and is the true ruler of this world. Here we have the heartbeat of the new covenant preaching. Namely, the truth about Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, by the word concerning Christ, by the word about Christ. That's what he's saying. Faith comes from hearing about Jesus. You can't have faith, you can't have salvation if you don't know about Jesus. The goal of preaching is to help people understand who Jesus is why he came, and what he has accomplished. That's why I'm here. Christ is the centerpiece of salvation, and thus the centerpiece of our salvation, of our preaching, of our ministry. He is the, the cent, Christ is the center diamond set at the center of our scripture and all of human history. And the only right response to such truth is submission. It's the only right response. Standing in the presence of such glory, one is driven to slavery. And that's where Paul goes. That's the only place he can go. This is why Paul says, with ourselves as your servants, yes, your slaves. That's what Paul's saying. We don't like the word slave in our translation, but that's what it says. Some translations do say that. Ours doesn't here, but with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Paul is saying that being a slave of Christ's lordship results in being a slave to those who belong to Christ. And while Paul is a slave to the Corinthians, they are not his Lord. That's why he says he is a slave for Jesus' sake. What Paul teaches us in this verse is that we minister as servants. Maybe you've heard the phrase servant leadership. Maybe you've heard that before, Christian circles. I like that phrase. It's a, kind of the upside-down orientation of Christian leadership. True Christian leaders do not advance gospel ministry by worldly power or domination. True Christian leaders advance gospel ministry by sacrificial service. And friends, this isn't just about being a pastor or working in the church. Not at all. The the principles of Christian leadership, as explained here and that we can unpack from, from the Word, are not just for pastors. They're for all people in any environment in which they're leading. So anything I say here about Christian leadership applies to you, not just me, all of us. One place that you could kind of prove this is in Mark chapter 10. I do this very often, but I'm actually going to go there and read a lengthy section because I think it's relevant and important. You remember this. This is Mark chapter 10, 
verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that is, they came to Jesus, and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Do you remember this account? Trying to, you know, hey, will you give us what we want? Right at the beginning. And he said to them, what do you want from me? Of course, Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows what they're going to ask. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left. In your glory. This is a power play. Right? They're trying to get to Jesus first so they can uh, you know, find a, a great place in his glory to sit at the right and the left of Jesus. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. They have no idea what he's talking about. Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared this all raises a little bit of a scuffle. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were mad that they tried to press in and make a power play. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said, I like this, it's kind of like, huddle up, everybody, okay. You know, take a knee. You know, let's talk about this for a second. So Jesus clears it all up. Remember, we're talking about servant leadership. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This isn't in the church or Christian ministry. This is just in the world that Jesus is talking about. This is how the world functions. They lord it over people. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. God's kingdom is different. With different leadership principles. It's not about pushing people around. It's about service. It, it's, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. To be first is to be a slave. Okay, Jesus, put your money where your mouth is. Next verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's powerful. That's our model. And so that's, Paul's model. Leadership is slavery. Not popular. This is what the Bible teaches. What the life of Jesus demonstrates is Christian leaders are not called to superiority. They're called to servanthood. Paul Tripp comments, people are not the objects of our power and control, but the focus of our sacrifice and service. Leaders, leaders who don't understand this are not true Christian leaders. They're worldly leaders. They're Gentile leaders. Jesus' language. What exactly does servant leadership look like? Well, a couple thoughts. Number one, it's naming your failures. To name your failures is to openly acknowledge our weaknesses and allow others to help us improve and heal. It's to accept the risks of admitting that you're the chief sinner. It's to lead with that. Being a leader doesn't exclude you from making mistakes. I'm the leader, I don't make any mistakes. I'm the best at something. No, no, no. That's not what being a leader is all about. 
Being a leader doesn't even mean that I make less mistakes or that you make less mistakes if you're in leadership. doesn't mean that at all. What being a leader means is that you're the first to name your mistakes. That's what being a leader looks like. Servant leadership looks like naming your failures and to complement that, servant leadership looks like embracing the gospel. It's embracing the gospel. It's demonstrating over and over how the gospel picks us up again and again and again. It's a message, the message of salvation that teaches us that it's not about our performance. And because it's not about our performance, it's about God's performance, we can just say that we failed. And then we can point people to Jesus. Jesus offers forgiveness and he picks me up every time. So let's move together and go somewhere together. That's what Christian leadership is. It's humility, I suppose. You want a word? It's naming your failures. It's embracing the gospel. And let me add a couple more. I know our time is getting away from us a little bit. The kids are in here. I apologize. It's going further than anyone else. Not in the sense of a sermon, but going further than anyone else, not longer than Danny went. Uh, we're, we're getting there. It's embracing the gospel, naming your failures, going further than anyone else, to not ask anyone to go further than you've chosen to go. It's to never expect others to be more honest, to be more humble, to be more forgiving, or more sacrificial than we're willing to be. That's what Christian leadership is. I keep saying that over and over again. Dan Ellender writes, wherever we stop in the progress of growth is the unseen line dividing civilization from no man's land. I take that to mean there's this gap between our leadership and the people. And we have to go all the way and name our failures to bring everyone with us. There's no division between the leadership and the people. That ought not to be. Not in the church. Christian leadership is naming, servant leadership, I should say, is naming your failures, embracing the gospel, going further than anyone else. And it's about forming character. It's about, you might say its focus is character formation. It's not that servant leaders don't, have to hire people and fire people and organize and reward and discipline and delegate and create policies and make financial decisions. All of those things have to happen in leadership. In any organization, in the church, they have to happen. They're, they're the duties of leadership, you might say. But the ultimate goal of our leadership is not the growth of the church or ought not to be the growth of some organization. That shouldn't be your focus first. The purpose of servant leadership is the maturing of character. That's what we're after. It's Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Ephesians 4.13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's about the formation of character as it applies to your life in your, whether you're a Fortune 500, you know, business owner, a CEO or a small business owner, wherever you are, does, is your aim the formation of character? Maybe you can't proclaim Christ openly at work, 
But you can certainly focus, focus on character, and you can use that to direct and guide people towards Christ as you name your failures, as you talk about Jesus forgiving your sins. All of those things you can do. Certainly you can go further than anyone else. All of these, these things are just ideas surrounding this, this concept of servant leadership. I told you there were five dynamics, and so I'll give, give you the, the fifth one here. Uh, and it comes to us in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Forgive me of the length of this one, but authentic Christian ministry preaches Christ as Lord and the manifestation of God's glory. Preaches Christ as Lord and the, the d- display of God's glory. Verse 6 begins with that quote, let light shine out of darkness. Although Paul doesn't cite the author, it sounds a lot like Genesis 1-3. I think most people take it that way. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. With this quote, Paul is equating the act of redemption with an act of creation. He does this again later in the letter, 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John Piper wrote, Let there be light. Thus spoke the Lord. Thus we were made and thus restored. Christ's conquering word created all our shining hope, his sovereign call. It was God's sovereign call that shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. In salvation, God has removed that veil that was over our hearts. He has delivered us from blindness and allowed us to see, to understand the glory of God. God's supernatural power reaches into the recesses of our heart and awakens us to the knowledge of himself. The new birth means we see him even for the very first time for all that he is. Chapter that proceeds in chapter 3, Paul talks about Moses, who he put a veil over his face. He went into the tent, tent and he, he was witness to the glory of God. And he, when he came out of the tent, he had that veil. He put a veil over his face because the people, they couldn't even look at Moses' face. It couldn't be in the presence of God's glory. I think there's a connection here to chapter 3 in this verse because Paul is saying that there's no veil over Christ. That we can look into the face of Jesus Christ and see all of God's glory. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. It's not like the old covenant. It's a new covenant. There's no veil over the face. It is a greater ministry. And so, authentic Christian ministry does not say, look at me. It says, look at Jesus Christ. Authentic Christian ministry preaches Christ as Lord in the manifestation of God's glory. If you'll permit me just about three more minutes, I will summarize what we've already covered. The balance and the beauty of Paul's thought in these descriptions They're remarkable. 
Paul's defense of himself as a minister of the new covenant, gives us these wonderful dynamics of authentic Christian ministry. An authentic Christian minister must rest on the mercy of God. For a man to avoid seeing ministry as merchandise, he must see ministry through the lens of mercy. Paul demonstrates this by keeping the realities of his formal life in view. An authentic Christian minister will will never walk so far with Christ that he can't recognize the life that he's been saved out of. An authentic Christian minister must be a man of integrity. A faithful Christian minister is forthright. He doesn't try to mislead or deceive. There is no manipulation or self-promotion. Such a man never dilutes or alters God's holy word. Rather, he aims to get it straight and to give it straight, appealing with confidence to the consciences of men. An authentic Christian minister must know that he will be rejected by those with blind minds. The realities of spiritual blindness are real and must be understood. This will guard the minister from adulterating the word and will keep him attentive to the realities of conversion. A genuine Christian minister will understand what is necessary for men to believe, namely, to see the light, the gospel of the glory of Christ. An authentic Christian minister will be a servant. In light of the glory of Christ, there is no room for self-exaltation. An authentic Christian minister will not practice self-promotion, but servanthood. He will be a servant leader. He will name his failures. He will embrace the gospel. He will aim to go further than anyone else. And he will focus on the formation of character. Authentic Christian minister will rest on God's mercy. He will be a man of integrity. He will know that, that, that he will be rejected by those with blind minds. He will be a servant. And finally, he will preach Christ as Lord and the display or the manifestation of God's glory. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the beautiful face of Jesus Christ. Mercy, integrity, alertness to spiritual blindness, servanthood, and the proclamation of Christ's glory. These are the five dynamics of an authentic Christian ministry.